ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. And you're very welcome to another Books of the Year podcast. Uh, I know another one following on so swiftly uh, from the Tom Bradby uh, episode. It's amazing. How did we do it, Matt? How do we put in this the shift? I'm not sure. We are we are frankly spoiling the internet with our uh, frequency of episodes at the moment. They really don't deserve it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure I believe any of that. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm delighted to say that we've been joined by Mick Heron, uh, the Sunday Times bestseller and the provider of the Slough House, Slow Horses, Bad Actors, the, everything, all of that. Hello, Mick, how are you? Hi there, Simon. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Yeah, uh, I'm okay. And um, uh, I think we can still hear Matt. So, Matt, if you're still there and your internet is still working, could you please describe the cover? I've got a um, proof copy of this, but I'm going to assume that the cover is the same as the one that you're going to see in the stores. So it's a well, it's a picture of Westminster. So we've got uh, Big Ben uh, in the bottom left-hand corner of, uh, of of the picture with obviously Westminster Bridge uh, next to it and uh, that gathering storm of uh, dark clouds uh, b- uh, dominating the front sort of, or the top half of the book. Mick Heron in big purple letters, Sunday Times bestseller, and bad actors picked out in white across the centre. As far as you know, Mick, is this the way it's going to look in the shops? No, I'm sorry, Matt. We've now gone for a unicorn bounding over a buttercup-filled meadow. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, just kidding. Yeah, you've got the right copy, that's right. Now you mention it, Mick, that that, that would work, wouldn't it? That sounds like something that you were offered and you sent back saying, I don't think so. I've been campaigning for this cover for a while. We'll see how it goes. Uh, okay. Well, it's, it's fantastic to uh, uh, to speak to you. And uh, congratulations on the, se- the success of this book and the TV series. And um, I think there are lots of very interesting lessons to be learned about the birth of uh, these characters and the birth of this series. Before we talk, discuss the bad actors, can you give us kind of like the origin story that where Slough House appeared from in the first place and where the slow horses appeared from. Where, at what stage did they occur to you and when did you write them down for the first time? Uh, well, the idea first started occurring in 2007 and I started work on the first book, um, Slow Horses, in 2008. At the time, I was working in London. I was commuting in from Oxford every day. So I was using Barbican Tube Station and walking from there down to uh, Bastwick Street, where my offices were. And I kept passing this um, this building every day, at least twice. 
and uh, for some reason it, it sunk its hooks into my imagination. I decided I was going to use it as a location in a novel. At the time, I thought probably just for a scene or so, but I don't know, it, um, it kind of took over. And because of the nature of the building and my, uh, my imagining of what it looked like on the inside, I knew it was going to be full of people who are quite desperate in one way or another. And I've always been interested in failure, failure more than success. I wanted to write about unhappy people rather than happy heroes. So um, I created a department full of um, uh, people who'd messed up their careers and I made them spies because that meant I could invent all sorts of stuff about the intelligence services. So it's really a, um, that notion of you know, failure and unhappiness and uh, people having their careers thwarted that appealed in the first place and everything else kind of followed from there. Well, well, that's quite interesting when you say everything else followed from there. I mean, the f so what happened when the first book was published? How was it received? Uh, I think it wasn't received, really. It kind of dropped out of sight. Uh, nothing happened for a good long time. I parted ways with my original publisher after that book was published. Uh, the second book in the series was published in the States uh, by Soho Press, who've published all my books uh, before and since then and are very wonderful. Um, but it wasn't until about 2015, by which time I was writing the fourth book in the series, that I acquired a new UK publisher when John Murray uh, took over those duties. And um, since then, my career in the UK has uh, has been on an upward trajectory rather than a rather than a down a well trajectory, which is where it had me. So I just it's interesting. I wonder if if that's kind of a lesson to a lot of people. In I mean, you say you're interested in failure, but actually this is quite an interesting example of just sticking with it, staying with it and believing in your idea. Well, I write the books because I want to write them and I'd, I'd carry on writing them, I think, even if no one was reading them. Um, I do say when asked that, you know, if, if I hadn't been published, I'd, I'd have a pile of manuscripts next to my bed. I don't know whether that's still true at this stage because, you know, there'd be quite a lot of manuscripts. But um, I do feel it. I mean, I find that writing is what fulfills me more than anything else. And uh, it's not something I would give up simply because, um, you know, the, the career wasn't stellar. Is bad actors a good place to start? Uh, I think I like to think that all of the books can be read on their own terms and you don't have to be aware of the series in order to um, pick up any single one of them. But as with all sets of novels about the same characters, um, you will find that there are some things you don't get if you haven't read the previous novels. I like to have my characters be part of a continuing uh, narrative. So I don't kind of press a reset button at the beginning of each book. You know, the characters are carrying damage or, or whatever from previous uh, experiences they've had in the in the earlier novels so uh, I mean, to get the full flavor obviously you have to go right back to the beginning but I wouldn't want to put anybody off picking up the latest one so um, who are I suppose it's ironic that bad actors is the title of the new book just as the Apple TV plus series turns up and you've got some of the world's greatest actors uh, uh, fulfilling <laughs> these roles but who or what are the bad actors in this novel uh, bad actors is a phrase I've been using in the past few novels and it was always intended to be uh, a title at some point it's just a coincidence that um, this book is coming out at the same time the series starts streaming uh, bad actors are simply those of malign intent it's a phrase you often see um, these days, it's, it's becoming quite common and um, specifically in this book it's referring to politicians and uh, uh, okay, so I realise there's, there's a lot to we. So let's unpack that just a little bit. Why, 
why go with bad actors now? Why go with politicians at this point in the story? Um, the books, I suppose, have had an increasing political content since about London rules. And uh, I'm finding a great deal to write about in the current political situation in the UK. Um, in this particular book, what I grew interested in was the use of um, unelected political advisers to control so much of what seems to be going on, so many of the decisions that are being made at a governmental level. Um, I suppose it's these people who are specifically the, the bad actors, because these as people, as I say, are, are unelected, and it seems to me that their motives for getting involved in um, the governance of the country are purely self-interested. They've got nothing to do with the, the public well-being. Mick, you've, you've talked there about the, uh, the, the politics um, side to the book, and well, bluntly, anyone who reads the book is that you're not going to need uh, to have too much interest in politics or current affairs to to guess what you're talking about. You have one character talking about how we've had enough of experts. You have a prime minister whose sole qualification for the job had been the widespread expectation he'd achieve it. You've got a main character called Sparrow who walks around with a satchel rather than a briefcase in the hope that people will comment on it. There is no attempt to disguise this. And, and I suppose in a in a lesser book, you, you would have tried to perhaps, uh, you know, cover your tracks a little bit more. It felt like this was more pointed. It felt like you were saying, no, this is absolutely what I'm talking about. Uh, any attempt I made to disguise that sort of thing uh, would probably wouldn't have worked. There'd be little point in it, I think. I've got more... <laughs> I'm interested in more than, um, than, than covering up uh, where the, the uh, suggestions for these characters come from. When we're talking about Sparrow, just explain who Sparrow is, and 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 also, I mean, people will work out pretty quickly that it's based on Dominic Cummings. But um, just explain who he is. Uh, Sparrow is a completely fictitious political advisor who has far more power than anybody who hasn't been elected ought to have. He is pretty much dominating the uh, policy decisions of the party to which he's attached, which I don't mention by name. Um, and he is a man who is interested in specifically in, in his own uh, his own ambitions his own ideals rather than anything that might serve the country he's supposed to be serving I would like to thank you uh, Mick for giving me the only opportunity that I think I've had on this podcast to mention um, the toughest piece of work that I did when I was at university uh, and I wrote an essay um, about um, Thomas Hobbes and the, the most dreadful book I've ever read, I think, at university, which was Leviathan. Uh, because we get, to, we get to the... So this is page 29 of your book, OK? I'm reading it to you, which feels a little bit weird, but I've got it, I've got it earmarked. As the Prime Minister's enforcer, Sparrow wasn't as high profile as his predecessor had been. It would have been challenging to maintain that level of unpopularity without barbecuing an infant on live television. But those in the know recognised him as a homegrown Napoleon. Nasty, <laughs> British and short. And that is a quote from Thomas Hobbes, who came up with the original expression, nasty, brutish and short. And when I came to that phrase, I punched the air and I thought, thank you, Mick. I can now talk about Thomas Hobbes on our books podcast. So, Take it away. Thank you very much. No, I've got nothing else to say <laughs> other than the frame nasty British and short. Did that come to you in a in a flash of inspiration? Uh, I seem to remember it arriving as I was writing the actual sentence. I, I love it when the language offers you a, a pun, you know, that's just been sort of hovering there in the air in front of you. Um, 
somebody asked me about the phrase nasty steps, which I used in, a, in the context of, um, of Russia in, in the previous novel. And that was a similar kind of thing. You know, the words are already there. You just need to slightly twist them or in nasty steps case, spell them differently. And you've got um, you've got a, a, a joke waiting for you. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think that nasty British in short might be a joke that's understood by Thomas Hobbes aficionados. But um that's it. I think I, th- I think we're all familiar with the phrase, though, oh, right? Yes, we? yes. Whether we know where it comes from or not. Have you uh, have you been familiar with the he- these heron addicts, the people who have increasingly loved your work? Uh, the phrase was offered to me quite recently. I read it in a, in a newspaper somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, I yes. And what it, is it's, what it's do they very, say very to you? Obviously. What comes back to you? Is it? that they're following particular characters or please don't kill him off or have you actually killed her off? Well, because that sounds to me as though they're engaging with this almost like it, it, it's a soap that they're following rather than a, like a series of spy novels. Um, I think the, the readership as it stands sort of divides into two really. There are those who um, like the espionage elements of it um, and there are those who like the soap opera elements, and I do agree they they are there. I mean, there'll be an overlap, obviously. Uh, but I think that the um, it's the the, the addicts, as they call themselves, I've only ever come across that phrase in the context of those who um, are enjoying the the espionage. Uh, aspect of the books that I write. You mentioned, uh, Mick, right at the start we, that, uh, about your sort of fascination for these, um, for failure, for, for these people who have failed in the uh, intelligence service and then been moved into this um, slow horses uh, department within it. And I, I, I have to say that's what I love about it as well, because frankly, that is a, is a universal experience that all of us have, will have had. Certainly those of us who've worked at large organisations is people who don't do very well get moved into a department where it's felt you're not going to do quite so much damage i know my experience at the bbc was uh, you get moved into future projects we're going to put you in charge of the 2036 olympics on the understanding that by the time 2036 comes along you'll either have retired or we've taken the olympics away from you and given you the 2052 olympics um in, in other words we're giving you something that you can't really spoil you there's not going to be any callback on it um but we can't just get rid of you uh, that th- that sort of mass fascination as I say, for, for misfits in big, big organisations. I, I, just talk a little bit more about, about how much you, you sort of uh, you felt the connection there. Well, I don't have any personal experience of uh, the intelligence services. I'm simply applying what I uh, came to believe about, uh, about large organisations through having worked for one. That is, the larger they get, the more dysfunctional they become. Um, so that notion of, of failure... Um, I, I like the approach that you just talked about. I think that's quite funny. I might try and use that myself. But um, the notion of setting up a, an actual department to put all these people in, uh, in one sense, it's completely unrealistic because most large organisations, if they had a department solely for the um, for the failures and the um, and the incompetence, that would be very quickly become the largest department in the organisation, which would overbalance everything. Um, but I do think that you know organisations do have strategies for for dealing with um, with failure. But my sympathies are entirely with those who are deemed to be failures, often through no fault of their own, and they're the people I wanted to um, to, to write about. As I say, it's more interesting to write about than um, than success or happiness. There's more depth there somehow. 
I wonder if that's why Father Ted was spectacularly funny, because they were, as priests, they were a bit rubbish, and there would be no point, it wouldn't have been funny if we'd have been watching uh, three people who were really good at their job. There's no doubt there's a tendency to empathise with the underdog, and I'm, I'm capitalising on that. But I think there has to be a certain amount of self-awareness involved. I mean, we can all enjoy The Office, but we don't empathise with the David Brent character. We all hope that we're not like him, rather than seeing the good side of him. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Mick, I interviewed uh, Mick Jagger uh, when the when his track came out to coincide with the with the TV launch, and he he was he was fantastically engaged and wildly excited about the whole project and and the piece of music that he'd come up with uh, to be the theme song uh, for the for the TV show. And in the, right at the beginning of the interview, he said when he was approached, he knew about he knew about the books knew about the characters because he'd been reading them. And I wondered if there was, if there was a point in, because this is, I think this is the eighth in the series. Was there a point in the eight where you realized that you were actually onto something and you weren't just writing to keep yourself happy? Um, I think it was probably with the fourth or, well, the fifth book, starting the fifth book. That was the first time I'd embarked on a novel knowing that I had a readership awaiting but I don't think that made any real difference. I mean, for me, writing, regardless of what's going on in terms of, you know, the reception of the previous book or whatever, uh, when I sit down to do a day's work, none of that is in my head at all. It's always the next thing rather than the last thing. It's the, the paragraph I'm working on now that um, that takes all my attention. And so it's it's obviously really gratifying. It's, it's, it's a huge pleasure to me to, to have readers um, enjoying the books and looking forward to the next one. But they, they don't come into the room with me when I'm doing the work. I don't know what your reaction was when you heard the Mick Jagger tune for the first time, but to me it was, it was, a, it was fantastic. Like nails it in four minutes. It had that kind of current of, I think there's a line in the song, isn't there, about being back in the big time again. And it sounded sleazy and it sounded... Um, sexy it sounded fantastic absolutely the first time i heard it was when uh, when i saw the, the show for the first time back in february we had a, a screening and um, watched all six episodes and obviously i had known that um that, that uh, Mick Jagger had written the the words and performed the theme song funny not everybody in the room knew that so it was quite an exciting moment a couple of us knew it uh, but not everybody the other writers not all the other writers knew so that was uh, that was a lovely moment when realization hit them it doesn't take you long to notice that that's Mick Jagger singing either it's it's like peak Mick Jagger uh, uh, as well. well did you have any reservations at all about signing it over to to Apple. I mean, obviously, they, they have done a fantastic job and the cast that they've assembled is, is just extraordinary. But before you actually got to that stage, what were your reservations, if any? Uh, well, I didn't sign it over to Apple personally. I worked with um, Seesaw, who were the, um, the co-producers on it, and they, several years after um, I started working with them, they made the deal with Apple, which, you know, 
when they were looking for a broadcaster. Uh, I'm I'm perfectly happy with the way things have gone. Obviously, I think the TV show is is fantastic, uh, and I suspect that you know a, a broadcaster with fewer resources might not have been able to um, acquire the the cast of the of the caliber that we have. So no, I mean there are always thoughts in the back of the mind. You know, that, I mean I absolutely trusted the producers I was working with to. Um, as, as they put it, remain very true to the books they were adapting. But there are always the possibility that once a huge corporation gets involved that compromises have to be made. But as far as I'm aware, no artistic compromises had to be made at all in, in the making of this show. Uh, the, the producers and the writers were given more or less free reign, or at any rate uh, managed to uh, win the day on all the important decisions that were being made. Anyone who comes to, I suppose if they read Harry Potter now they will envisage the characters who played those characters of course, in the movies. I wonder mm. if it's going to be possible for anyone picking up bad actors not to think of... Not to think of Sirius Black, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true, of course. Not to think of this... I mean, Gary Oldman is, is incredible. A slightly toned-down version from the book, I think. But, you know, he does he embody it as far as... I mean, you're his creator. What do you think? Uh, people ask if I'll start seeing him when I'm doing the writing, and uh, it hasn't happened yet, although I'm not currently writing a, a, a Slough House novel. Uh, but if he did, I wouldn't be remotely worried. I think he's doing a fantastic job, and if he does start to um, uh, become the voice in my head, uh, let alone readers' heads, I, that won't worry me, um, because he is he's one of the greatest character actors in the world. I mean, he can do... He can happily deliver any lines I come up with. Someone actually said in fact it's probably going to turn out to be matt and and i've just forgotten that it was matt that if you watch if you watch tinker taylor soldier spy it's like a prequel to to this series because it shows gary oldman is quite a successful spy uh, before it all fell apart and now it now he's in your series of books me it's like a mashup between that and uh, sid and nancy isn't it it's um sid vicious meets george smiley absolutely so um if you don't have any reservations and if you get on very well with the screenwriters. I wonder if um, at any stage the TV series will have a life of its own and whether the... Because is Jack... Cause would you agree that the Jackson Lamb on television has to be slightly milder than the Jackson Lamb in the book? Uh, yes, probably. I haven't given it a great deal of thought, to be honest, but um, yes, that's probably true. Just wonder if, if some of his views wouldn't be acceptable on television. Uh, I, I think some of his, his views shouldn't be acceptable anywhere, to be honest. But uh, in the books, I hope there's always that notion that um, you don't know whether he means it or not. He's generally saying the things he does in order to produce a certain effect in whoever he's saying it to. We never see what he's thinking or, or what he's feeling. We simply uh, witness his, his words and actions. And that, he's the only one of the characters I do that with. I do keep him at arm's length. I think another appeal for me for this is uh, how low-tech and dingy you make uh, the spy world appear. And I think as well with um, where Simon's book Knife Edge deliberately playing down the, the, the tech side of things just to keep that the, the threat level feels more real when it's not a nuclear bomb ticking in Times Square, but it's, it's people uh, attacking you in your face. And I, I felt like, so there's a, a sequence where you have them watching CCTV at a quarter speed, which 
it, it struck me that you are at your happiest when you're making their job sound as desperate and mundane and banal as possible. Would I be right with that? Oh, that's where I get my kicks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have very little interest in technology, apart from being a kind of low-level user of it. Uh, I'm always more interested in what the characters are doing. But also, more importantly, I'm completely... uh, uh, inept at um, the use of technology. You're, frankly, you're very lucky I'm able to do this much. Um, so I'm making a virtue of my limitations by putting them in a world where they're not allowed any of the high-tech stuff that you know the real intelligence operatives use. Um, it's, it's because if I attempted to do that, I would, I would come a cropper very quickly. Has the success of the Slough House books, Mick, meant, and now the TV show, meant that it, you can go and write, because you've written another series... Uh, but you can write other projects. You can go back to other projects that you thought you might have stopped because you don't have to necessarily be winning people over all the time. Um, I'm certainly able to do whatever I want in writing, but I've always been in that position. Um, I've never had to uh, pitch ideas. You know, I simply write what I want to write and um, and then, you know, my agent does the heavy lifting from there on. At the moment I'm writing a non-Slough House book. There's a possibility that at some point I will go back to an earlier series I was writing about a private detective. Uh, not because... Well, simply for the, the reason that I feel like I, I never really said goodbye to that character. It's a while since I wrote about her, but there was a collection of short stories last year and in preparing preparing that collection I thought maybe there's, you know, time for a, a little farewell there somewhere but I have no immediate plans to do that it's just a, an idea that's taking root far at the back of my mind Is that the Down Cemetery Road They uh, Yes and, and its sequels uh, a character called Zoe Bohm who is the uh, the detective in that particular no- novel I find that very interesting you know the dynamic that's running in your head as to when and how to to bring that back would it be just waiting for a story that will bring her back to life uh, I rarely wait for stories. If I decide to um, apply myself to the character again, that's what I'll do. One, I find that um, writing isn't necessarily the, the product of uh, a creative spurt. Um, writing generates a creative spurt. If I start working on something, then I will have an idea for um, for a story hopefully you know, it might yeah. not happen uh, but if I'm you know I, I get far more done by turning my laptop on and starting to um, put sentences together than I do lying on my sofa staring at the ceiling just wondering what I should do next so are you is, I always I mean I've interviewed Lee Child a number of times we've had him on the podcast uh, a few times he's kind of famously doesn't really know what he's doing when he's well in his own words when he starts he just right he just begins and he's not quite sure where he's going to take Reacher he just starts uh, the story. Are you like that, or do you plot and plan meticulously? I'm somewhere in between the two. I don't plot and plan meticulously, but I do have certain events that I know are going to take place, and I have a sense of the direction I'm going in and the ending I'm going to reach. Um, the, but most of the writing takes place in the, in the spaces in between. Really, I mean, it's the detail and it's what the characters say and do and how they respond to each other that uh, that gives uh, a, a novel its life, I think. So, and that's what happens on the page while you're doing it. I don't think you can plan that kind of thing in advance. So I, I leave um, I leave wide open spaces that I have to make up on the on the trot, largely because I think even if you plot something really meticulously, as soon as you start writing, you'll you'll realise the flaws that uh, that are there, are things you didn't think of beforehand. Once you enter into a story, you can see the um, 
uh, the the kind of brick walls that are there that, that weren't there in your imagination before. But does does a new book get easier, or is it just as difficult? Oh, books are always difficult. It's always like starting all over again. The bit that's easier is you know not what to trust and what not to trust. You learn to trust your intuition more, and you learn not to trust the um, the kind of roller coaster of emotions you go through. One day thinking, oh, this is the best thing I've ever done. The next half hour even thinking, oh, this is dreadful. This is awful. I must give up immediately. That happens all the time, and you just ignore it because when you're looking back on a, a completed piece of work, you can. I find I can never identify which bits were the hard bits and which were the were the good bits. You know, it's all just it's all just work. So I ignore all that. That's what I've learned to do, and uh, to trust the intuition, which is and much of which is when things are are going particularly badly, when a scene is really hard to write, to take a step back and say, should this scene be here at all? Uh, I do find that 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 kind of kicks in in a way that I don't remember it doing when I was uh, just starting out. The kind of inner awareness that this this has gone wrong, throw it away, move back six pages and start again, you know, that kind of thing. And if, if someone was working at the working from the beginning, Mick, and of, of the slow horses, and they're working, working their way through all eight back to back, you mentioned that they're getting more political. Are you getting angrier? Uh, I think the books are getting angrier. I, I kind of uh, separate myself from them in a, in a way. Uh, yes, I, I think they are. I think that, you know, politically things have gone from being in a pretty bad place when I started writing them to a terrible place now. So, yes, I think they should be getting angry. What can you tell us about what you're writing at the moment, Mick, if anything? I'm just intrigued. Uh, it will be in the same world, but it's not a Slough House novel. I'm still writing about uh, espionage. I'm still writing about that kind of uh, world in which political machinations take place, even if they're sort of office politics uh, as well as, you know, big world politics, if you like. Um, it's a different set of characters, though. Uh, Mick, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. There'll be another uh, chat with Mick uh, for the Q&A, uh, which will be available uh, in a few days. Uh, Mick Heron's book is Bad Actors. Uh, Mick, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Matt. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.